0: Thank you, brother. Boy, it is raining. (laughs) (coughs) Hallelujah. Tonight, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 12. We're going to begin at verse 22. I want to set it up just a little bit by talking about forgiveness. By nature, God is very, very forgiving. If you read the Bible much, you know that he seems like he's always forgiving somebody. That's his nature. That's the nature of the Son and the Spirit. The Old Testament abounds with examples of his forgiveness. When Adam and Eve committed sin, you remember what happened? He forgave them. You remember? When Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sinned, what happened? God forgave them. When Moses sinned, God forgave him. When Israel, under the judges and under the kings, sinned, and they sinned mightily, the Lord forgave them. Israel's history is a history of God's forgiveness. He did it all along. David, Solomon, Elijah, when they sinned, God forgave them. Likewise the New Testament pictures God as supremely the God of forgiveness. Now we need to know that because we need to be forgiven as well. Excuse me. Tonight, if you've got a little pen, I want you to get out your pen and I want you to write in your Bible somewhere, I don't care where, but somewhere where you'll see it. Don't put it in Leviticus. <laughs> put it somewhere where you'll see it. Write down 1 John nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me do that again. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does anybody not have it? I need to do it again. That is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It relate. It's not the Levitical. It's not like the Levitical food laws. It relates to every one of us. This is a verse that we need in our life every day. Every day, it's a very, very important verse. I used to do a radio show in uh, Dallas, and I did it about single adults, and people would call in, and they'd say, those singles are sleeping around, and I would say, well, do you have it in your heart to forgive them? And he said, no, we, we need to get after them. That's what we need to do. We need to get after them. I said, well, do you have it in your heart to forgive them and help them to begin in a new way? Some of the meanest people called up on that radio station. No matter how severe the sin, I had a cousin once I was witnessing to my cousin You remember Cousin Betty? She had a lot of sin in her life. She said, I've been so bad that God could never forgive me. And I said, yes, he could. And he will, if you ask him to. He will. If you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. She just looked at me. I could tell she didn't believe me. No matter how severe your sin is, God can forgive it. Now, what do you think would be the worst conceivable sin? Don't you think it would be to kill God's son? Isn't that about the worst conceivable sin that there is? Of course, killing him is exactly what some men did. You remember? Remember? While he was hanging on the cross, about to die, Jesus prayed and affirmed the forgiving mercy available to his executioners. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that something? Isn't that powerful? You know, all of us would have prayed, hit them a few times, Lord, and then forgive them. Something like that. Well, the degree of sin does not forfeit forgiveness because even the killing of God's son was forgiven. Nor does the volume of sin end the possibility of mercy. A 70-year-old man who has lived in debauchery and sin and stealing and lying and profanity, and blasphemy, and immorality is just as forgivable as a seven-year-old little girl who's done nothing worse than normal childhood mischievous. Nor does the particular kind of sin cancel grace. In Scripture, we find God forgiving idolatry, Murder, gluttony, fornication, adultery, cheating, lying, homosexuality, covenant-breaking, blasphemy, drunkenness, extortion, and every other kind of sin imaginable. You read through the pages of Scripture, you'll see the Lord forgiving people for all those things. And he forgives self-righteousness. You know, that's, that's a terrible thing. To think that you are so good, you don't, you're not capable of sinning. That's what the Pharisees thought. That's what the scribes thought. You remember what Jesus said to them. He even forgives the sin of rejecting Christ. Now we know that's true, don't we? Because every one of us did that sin. We were lost before we were saved. You know these people that tell you, oh, I've just been saved all my life. They don't know what they're talking about. They're wrong. They weren't saved all their life. There came a point and a place in their life when they confessed their sin and placed their trust and their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Unless they did that, they're not saved. There is forgiveness of even the greatest sin if those divine conditions are met. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah and King gradually es- escalated in his ministry as it continued. As we have seen, first there was doubt. They doubted. They thought, well, who is this guy? Then there was criticism. They didn't like something that he was doing or the way he was doing it. And then there was indifference. A lot of people were indifferent. And then it culminated in Rejection. A lot of people rejected Jesus while he was moving around in the Holy Land, preaching and teaching and healing. The religious leaders of Israel added blasphemy against the Holy Spirit to their rejection of Christ. We're going to talk about that at length next week. For centuries, God's people had longed for the Messiah. There are 400 interbiblical biblical years there. You know, the prophet said, Thus saith the Lord. The last time that was said, then 400 years transpired, and there was no word from God. No prophet rose to speak the word of God. Their divine deliverer, uh, they hoped, would come, and they hoped beyond anything else that they would be around to see him. They wanted to see him. Is there anybody that you're just dying to see? I mean, you're just dying to see them. You know, uh, I know some people that have told me that they're dying to see some particular movie star. Something like that. Makes me want to throw up. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. 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 The hope of every godly prophet, every teacher of Israel, was to live long enough to see the Messiah. That's what they wanted to see. And every Jewish girl dreamed of being the mother of Jesus. Yet when he arrived, he was denied and he was rejected by the masses. Look at verse 22. Matthew 12, 22. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and Jesus healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Now, this man had multiple severe problems. Severe problems, not just little bitty problems. He was demon-possessed, he was blind, and he was dumb. He was probably also deaf because there's kind of a group of things that went together. He was probably deaf, But the fact that Jesus healed him was not unique. He had healed of hundreds of people like that. This wasn't something that was unique. Perhaps he had healed thousands with these maladies. Uh, people that were demon-possessed, blind, dumb, and deaf. As was often the case, the healing demonstrated some very, very powerful things. In one act, Jesus' dominion over both the spirit world of demons and the physical world of disease, he healed both at one time. He undeniably possessed the power to heal every kind of disease. It says in the scripture that he healed everybody that came up there. He cast out any kind of demon, any number of demons. Didn't matter if there was one demon or a hundred demons, he would cast them right out. Even he restored life to the dead. He performed thousands of instantaneous, total, permanent, verifiable healings. He did all that. His supernatural powers could no longer be questioned either by the common Multitudes of people are by the more educated and the more skeptical religious leaders. Yet most of the sin-blinded people remained ambivalent to Jesus. They weren't sure about his identity. Some people run around saying, we know who his parents are. He's not the son of God. We know who his parents are. They denied the source of his great power. They didn't know where it came from, but they didn't think it came from God. They knew that miracles would be proof signs of the Messiah, but they also expected the Messiah to come with royal fanfare, a lot of fanfare. And they expect him to come as a mighty warrior. He probably needed to be about eight feet tall and have biceps a foot around to satisfy them. They were never satisfied. Because Jesus did not appear to be a conqueror or a king, never claimed to be, didn't want to be, never was, the people would not accept him being the Messiah. The scribes and the Pharisees, had been dogging Jesus' footsteps for a long time. They always wanted to catch him in saying something that they could use against him at a later time. They were already convinced at this point that he was an enemy of Judaism. So much so that they even uh, collaborated against him with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were not religious people. They were followers of Herod. They were secular people. They were evil people. They wanted to keep everything in line. They didn't want any riots breaking out or any kind of war starting up. They didn't want anything to disturb the peace that was there and the power, of course, that Herod had. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were normally arch foes with the Herodians, but they joined together because they were both against Jesus. He was messing up their system. The religious leaders were no longer merely skeptical and resentful, but they became adamantly hostile to Jesus. Jesus, therefore, seems to have performed the particular healing on this occasion, especially for their benefit. He wanted them to see it. And, of course, they did. Well, before their eyes, they saw a man become immediately and dramatically Delivered from three great afflictions, he stood before them in sound mind, sound spirit, and both spoke and saw everything that was going on. The miracle was incontest; it just could not be contested in any way. Now let's look at verse twenty-three, and all the multitudes were amazed, and they began to say, "This man cannot be the son of David, can he?" Now, that's the last thing that the Pharisees wanted to hear, the very last thing. Although many people among the multitudes present that day had doubtlessly seen Jesus perform a lot of these miracles before, they were especially amazed at this one. And the people began to say out loud, and that was a big problem, for the Pharisees and for the Herodians, they begin to say out loud, "Out loud! can this man be the son of David? Can he be it? Can he be the one? The son of David was one of the many scriptural titles for the Messiah. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey and they did the, the branches before him and all that? Some were saying the son of David the son of David. That meant he was the Messiah. Let's look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The fact that the multitudes were seriously wondering if Jesus was going to be the Messiah or was the Messiah, boy, this sent the Pharisees into a panic mode. They were just so upset, they couldn't believe what was happening right in front of them. So they unwittingly came out with this ridiculous, foolish accusation that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, who was Satan. These Jewish leaders, uh, of whom the Pharisees were always the most zealous, always the most vocal, could not tolerate the thought of this man that they hated being the Messiah. That would be the worst possible thing that could happen, they thought. They denounced him as a hypocrite. They denounced him as a sinner. They denounced him as being in league with Satan. Jesus had trampled on their human system of traditions. You know, they made up these rules. And they held those rules on the same plane as Scripture. And, of course, that wouldn't do at all. That wouldn't do at all in the mind of Jesus. And so he opposed them, so they hated him. Well, their intent was to poison the minds of the people against Jesus by answering their question about him with a very strong no. This is not the son of David. No, it is absolutely not the son of David. They said, in effect, that he was the antithesis of the son of David. He was in league. He was a servant of Beelzebub, who was the ruler of the demons. They had only one option, of course. You know, they knew that uh, the power of Jesus was supernatural. Nobody else could do it. Uh, it, was, it was unique to him. They, they knew it was not of this world. That was obvious. And there's only two sources of supernatural power. That's God and Satan. So uh, they, of course, didn't want to recognize Jesus as being from God. So they really were forced to conclude the only thing that they could conclude that would keep them safe. They said, he's in league with the devil. That's all they could say. They didn't have any other choices. Look at the the last part of verse 25. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Jesus saw The Pharisees going around among the people, the scribes going around among the people saying that he is in league with the devil. Now he was far enough away he couldn't hear them, but he knew through his omniscience what they were saying and what they were doing. He knew their thoughts. They would not confront him directly with their accusation. So guess what? Jesus walked over to them and he said to them, what you're saying is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Think about it. It makes no sense whatsoever. It is prejudice. It is rebelling against what obviously is. What you're saying is crazy. And of course it was. You know, Jesus showed his accusers, that their charge was logically uh, absurd, made no sense. It's axiomatic that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. It would be laid waste by destruction. applies to any city, any government system, any town, any house any family, if you will. And one or the other, uh, if they become divided against themselves, uh, obviously it will bring about the end of that entity. There's no other option. Applied to the spirit world, the principle is just as clear. If Satan is casting out Satan... He is divided against himself, and how can that system stand? Jesus is saying, I'm casting out demons. I'm not bringing demons in. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. If I'm given this power by Satan, then why would I be casting Satan out? And, you know, even the dumbest people there could understand that. That wasn't some great, uh, you know, theological issue. Any idiot could understand that. Outside of the Trinity, Satan is the most intelligent being in existence. Now, follow me here. We're going to tread into a little deeper water here. There's the Trinity, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They all three have the omnis that we talk about, omniscience, omnipotent, and omnipresent all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present. Now, Satan didn't have that. But Satan was the most intelligent being in existence outside of those three members of the Trinity. And he doesn't assign his forces to fight against each other. He's smarter than that. He doesn't send out demons to uh, destroy his own program. That'd be crazy. Satan is the father of hatred and the father of lies and where such things rule there is confusion. There's no question about that. You know, you know that from experiences of your life. If people are lying, if people are you know just making up stuff, it causes a lot of uh, confusion. It's also true that Satan is brilliant, is powerful, and is able to move from place to place with seemingly unbelievable speed he is nevertheless not omniscient not omnipotent not omnipresent it is further true that satan often disguises himself as an angel of light now there's only one place in the bible where that's spoken of it's in second corinthians 11:14 He sometimes presents himself as an angel of light. In that role, he may pretend to cast out a demon. And really what he does is he just kind of lessens the power of the demon. And we see that uh, supposed exorcism, we see that in the world today. That's still happening. There are still uh, these uh, pseudo Uh, exorcists that are all over you know I've taught we have a lot of missionaries come to our church and speak that we're supporting around the world haven't you heard uh missionaries speak about exorcism uh that happened I have many times and I'm sure you have uh that that is very common throughout the world even today in its practice By various cults and false healers and exorcists. But despite the disorder of his kingdom, Satan does not cast out Satan. He's not into that. He is not divided against himself. There is no harmony, trust, or loyalty in his kingdom. But he doesn't tolerate division and disobedience. It was therefore preposterous to claim that Jesus was of Satan and casting out Satan. That made no sense to anybody. Jesus presented himself with such authority and such power and such obvious uh, domination of the spirit world and the physical world that if people had just opened their minds at all, they would have believed instantly. In who he was and what he was doing. You know, there are a lot of people who don't believe any of that. Now, what we need to do is to pray that they will come to the Lord Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key to all of these things. We have to come and say, Lord, I've sinned. I've done some terrible things. I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And, Lord, I probably am forgetting some things. And I want to ask for your forgiveness from all of those things. And he will forgive. If we come with a penitent heart and we ask him to forgive us, he will. Scripture says that. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you'll ask him to forgive you, he will. You can be saved in this very hour. If you're here in the house and you've been holding back from joining the church because of some sin in your life, you can ask him to forgive you, and he will. Right now. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'm going to stand down here at the front. If there's anybody here tonight that would like to make any type of spiritual decision, we would encourage you to do it, to take a strong stand with Jesus. Would you do it tonight? Let's stand sing together.